everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the New Horizons podcast. My name is Stephanie and I'm joined by my co-hosts. Uh, Kamalip. And I'm Vanza. And today we have the honor of speaking with Dr. Parissa Safai, an associate professor in the, school, in the School of Kinesiology and Health Science at York University. Good afternoon, Dr. Safai. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you for thank you for being with us today. Uh, do you mind introducing yourself to our listeners on some of your research that you have done? Happy to. So my name is Parisa Safoy. I'm a professor in the School of Kinesiology and Health Science. That's in the Faculty of Health at York University. I'm a sociologist in the School of Kinesiology, and my areas of research are predominantly around the sociology of sport and the sociology of medicine, health, and healthcare. Um, so uh, I look at always, I'm looking at the intersection of sport, at the intersection of risk, health, healthcare, well-being, and I'm interested in things like why is it so normal for athletes to be expected to play with pain? I look at sport injury rates and um, how they may be influenced by political economy, by professional sport leagues, high performance or Olympic sport. I'm also interested in looking at um, things like the social determinants of health and how they impact in and through sport and physical activity of uh, the social determinants of health on athletes' lives. So the material conditions of athletes' lives and then what that means for their, their health. Um, I know this might be kind of an obvious uh, question, but why do you think that sport is so meaningful and why do you think that it's important to ensure that all Canadians have access to a quality sports experience? Yeah, thanks. I don't think it's an obvious question. And I think a lot of people, when they think about, well, why is sports so meaningful for them? I think you, we need to appreciate that there are some folks who will turn around and say sport is meaningful because they themselves enjoy sport. There are a lot of folks who don't participate in sport for a wide range of reasons. And so sport might be meaningful for them in the absence of participation. But as a sociologist, uh, we, we are always thinking about the ways in which human beings are connected and interconnected and in interaction with one another. And so uh, we always realize that um, athletes are not on uh, individual islands or people. We are not on our own little individual islands. We're always generating meaning about life in interaction and in engagement with one another. And so sport is a place and a space, it's a site where we can actually see how people come to invest meaning into things, how they come to better understand who they are, who their community or their group is, who they understand other people to be. And in many ways, what we can do is we can look to sport to get better insight into how we, in society, how we understand ourselves in society. So in some ways, sport can be a place where it kind of offers a bit of reflection for who we are, what we are, what we hold important or not important. In mm-hmm. other ways, sport is really meaningful because it becomes a site of um, reproducing power relations for good or negative. And, and I'm always fascinated actually about the ways in which sport becomes a site for resistance. Sport becomes a place where actually folks um, push back against dominant forces or inequities and say, no. I think a a really obvious example that folks on the podcast may relate to is that of Colin Kaepernick from the professional football, from the the National Football League. 
and his mm -hmm. act of taking the knee during anthems really um, preceded what we have now seen over the last year around um, uh, anti-Black racism and how much more explicit it has become. So sport mm -hmm. can be a place where just it reproduces all the, the good and not so good things in our lives. It can be a place that can act as a reflection, a mirror, or it can be a place where resistance can happen. Now, why is it important that everyone has an opportunity to have access to quality sport? Why, why I think that that's so meaningful? Well, um, I actually, I would argue and say, I think everyone should have the opportunity to access sport if they want. Um, because in my own research, uh, unfortunately, the reality of it is, is that at certain levels of sport, particularly at the higher levels, sport is mm -hmm. not really good for people. It's not really healthy. We keep saying it's good for you and you should be doing it, but the, when yeah. we look at the rates of injury, not so much at the higher levels of competition. But mm -hmm. I do believe that everyone should have the opportunity to practice humane sport, that it should be available in a humane way for those who want to participate in it. Um, and uh, that requires a lot of different things to happen to make accessible physical activity and or sport uh, available to all. You definitely touched on a lot of important points in sports, and I was also wondering, how does someone's socioeconomic status affect their chances of becoming an athlete? Mm -hmm. What a fantastic question. It's really significant, and we know that it impacts anybody who wants to participate, whether it be just in community sport and recreation, all the way up to the higher levels of participation. For those, there have been consistent trends for decades now, decades and decades and decades now in Canada, as well as in other parts of the world, that the higher your socioeconomic status, the more opportunity you have to participate in sport, the opportunity your children may have to operate and to participate in sport. And that's in part because of uh, two things, disposable income, as well as disposable time. And these trends have been consistent for long, long, long periods of time. When you have more socioeconomic status or higher socioeconomic status, you have a position with which to then pick and choose what activities to participate. You can participate in leisure. Uh, compare that to someone, and I'll use a generalization. If you are someone who has to work multiple jobs, long hours, and in physically demanding labor, you may just physically not have time with which to say, I'm gonna go and golf, or I'm gonna go and play pickup basketball or something. So uh, you need the disposable time as well too, in addition to the dollars. We also know that those who are going up into higher levels of competitive sport, you need even more money with which to then be able to train and compete at that level. And so we know that Canadian high performance athletes routinely come from either very financially stable, so upper middle to upper class families. They uh, need that kind of dollars because they are investing thousands of dollars annually in equipment, in coaching, in practice facilities, travel, competitions, etc. So that's in order to be a high performance or high functioning athlete at that level. So that is, uh, I will just add very quickly, the really sort of horrible part is that the Canadian government for years now has been trying to actually subsidize the high level sport in order to make it more democratic or more available to people from lower socioeconomic groups. And, and we still see no improvement in the situation. Why do you think that is? 
why did you think that there was no improvement? If we look at the data about um, from what types of families high performance athletes come from, Canadian Olympians, for example, when uh -huh. we uh, work with them and we interview them or we get even quantitative data and we ask, okay, so what's your individual income or what's your household income or your famil fam familial income? What yeah. we see is that there still remains the trend that if you are participating at the highest levels of the sport, representing uh -huh. the province or representing the country, you are still coming from a high socioeconomic family. And um, this has not changed even though policies were introduced 30 years ago plus now that was trying to sort of make it more accessible to all. And that, and that was motivated in part by exact same trends. The folks that, who were saying we want to be the future Olympians or we are the current Olympians representing Canada are still coming from a very sort of affluent um, socioeconomic tier. I've never thought about it like that, honestly. I would think that sports is mostly, mostly, uh, mostly to do with skill level. I never really thought about it in terms of money as well. It's really interesting. Yeah, you're not alone in that. And this is the part of sport that tends to... Um, uh, tends to be the cliched part of sport. We often talk about sport as a level playing field. And we mm -hmm. know that frankly is just not true. Um, yeah. And in fact, major politicians often would routinely kind of characterize sport as the level playing field in efforts to sort of advance their political campaigns to render themselves like the everyday man or the everyday person using sport. We saw that here mm. in the case of Toronto with the former um, mayor of the city, uh, Rob Ford. We have seen that often come out or be trotted out with major politicians in Canada, the US and other countries. But mm. when you actually start to go past that facade, it is not true. Sport is not a level playing field, it, especially in terms of the socioeconomic status mm. of it. Even if you look at it just in terms of um, community sport or grassroots sport, you can go to different neighborhoods all around Toronto, the city of Toronto, and you can see different kinds of sport opportunities available for folks by those neighborhoods. The more affluent neighborhoods in the city of Toronto have more available to them. Better community centers, more private sport organizations or sport clubs, and contrast that with the neighborhoods in the city of Toronto that are mm -hmm. you know, they're labeled high risk, or neighborhood improvement areas. That's the language that's used for those areas in the city of Toronto that are more socioeconomically depressed. Mm -hmm. If you go and look into and just take a walk around those neighborhoods, you'll see at best, you know, maybe a basketball court. You'll see um, not necessarily the most modern um, community recreation centers. And you'll see communities that have really not particularly aesthetically pleasing green spaces. So you can map that by socioeconomic status in terms of neighborhoods all around the city of Toronto. Yeah, and so like having the different levels of income is a really big um, barrier for many athletes. But through your research, you also talk about women and women athletes and the barriers that they face. What are like the biggest barriers do you think that are most prevalent for women athletes? Yeah, what a great question too. So, um, you know, if we compare the situation right now for female athletes compared to previous generations, it's a little bit of a good news story. 
in that we can see more female athletes than ever before participating in certain sports. Um, and again, I'll use the Olympics as example. We've now had a couple of Olympics where 50% and in some cases 50 plus percent of the athletes were women. And if you compare that historically, that's really, that is a success, it's great. So the situation has improved for some women in some situations, in some sports. However, um, we don't see the same positive trends with regards to women in sport leadership. We now have the fewest and the sport, uh, we have the fewest women in coaching, for example, than ever before. We have the fewest women in other kinds of sport leadership, sport administration, sport management than ever before. Uh, and that's a really sad sort of statement of affairs. What are the barriers? Well, uh, in many cases, um, the barriers remain about, there still remains some cultural dynamics in certain spots or places to suggest that sport is not for women that women should not participate. There are still some pressures on girls and women. Um, particularly, we know that around the ages of 12 to 13, we experience a real drop in the number of girls who continue to participate in sports. So there's something that's happening there socially, culturally, also developmentally. Uh, we also know that women uh, are really experiencing disproportionate rates of harassment or abuse. We also see that in some situations, women are not provided with the supports that are needed to keep them in sport. So, for example, depending upon where a woman is in her life course, there are some expectations that after a certain point in time, she stop participating in sport and focus on career or family or children and be the caregiver or the nurturer. So those kinds of pressures are there as well, too. If we take the pandemic as just one example, we know that girls and women have borne a disproportionate proportion of the burden with regards to COVID, that that has really impacted women as a, in addition to sort of BIPOC people and communities more so than ever before, that women have had to take on the lion's share more than ever before of caregiving, whether it be for children or for elder care. And so these are the barriers that still remain uh, for, for women who want to participate as athletes. And then it's even more pronounced if you want to go into leadership in some way, shape or form. There's a real, we call about the, we talk about the glass ceiling. There's a really profound glass ceiling in sport for women in sport leadership. I see. Uh, so we just talked about some of the disparities that exist between how people perceive men and women in sports. And I know that in some cultures, it's not even allowed for some women to participate. Do you think that it's possible to change these preconceived notions about women in sports? Absolutely. At the cultural level? Sorry. No, I apologize. I, I cut you off there. Absolutely, it's possible to change. As human mm -hmm. beings, we have that possibility to change. If we didn't, we wouldn't enjoy some of the, the things that we can, we can enjoy now. Um, mm -hmm. If there was no change, I, I probably wouldn't be here in this forum yeah. with you all being able to talk to you all. So change can happen. Now, I think you're referring to ethnocultural groups when you say that they're in some cultural groups, there's some real resistance or stigmatization around women participating in sport. And so um, you're absolutely correct that in some ethnocultural groups, there remain more rigid stereotypes about who can participate in sport. And there remains some beliefs that somehow girls and women um, are, are not for sport. 
um, change can happen internally. We know that those there are individuals within those very ethnocultural groups who are disrupting that. We mm -hmm. know that in some cases it's external pressures um, that are motivating the change, but the change can happen. For example, we know that for, for, for a long time now, um, there were many girls who were prevented from participating in sport because they observed uh, wearing a hijab or some form of head covering. So yet they were athletic. They enjoyed sport. They wanted to participate. And the barrier was not necessarily their own sort of um, ethnocultural or religious community that was saying this is part and parcel of your observance to your faith, but rather it was an external barrier. Sport organizations who, who frankly incorrectly were saying, no, 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 you can't have a, a head covering and participate in rugby. Rugby was my sport uh, growing up. And now we know that that is simply not true, that there are ways with which to allow girls and women to participate while still being observant of their faith with a head covering, that's just one example, and still be safe, still meet all of the sort of the health and safety guidelines in the sport. The change can happen, whether it's coming from inside or being exerted from outside, maybe it's a mix of both, maybe it can be just one or the other, but change can happen. But I'm really very, very reluctant to suggest that ethnocultural groups, even those that are very, very sort of still um, rigid with regards to um, what girls can do will never change. I think that would be far too, um, far too dramatic uh, kind of a, a statement to make because change can happen. Yes, I definitely believe this as well. But I would just like to say that like I'm a woman from a conservative family and I'm really passionate about uh, sports and maybe I would want to pursue a, a career in sports in the future, but my family may be kind of against this. Uh, what advice would you give to someone like me trying to follow my dreams without potentially facing negative consequences? Yeah, well, that's a tough situation, right? And, and so first and foremost, thank you for sharing that. And um, what are some of the things that individuals can do? I mean, I would like to think that, of course, open dialogue to better understand why the resistance might be there. It's always so necessary. In my own case, for example, when I started to play rugby when I was 15 years old, it was met with some, some shock from my own parents. Ethnoculturally, my parents are from Iran and they migrated to Canada back in the 70s but they are not athletic people themselves. And so when I decided that rugby is my sport, it was absolutely sort of a, a shock to them on so many different levels and they were not happy about it. And what really they first were saying a uh, language like, well, girls shouldn't play this rough sport like rugby. But once I was actually able to sort of tease down to kind of what was at the core of their concern, it really frankly wasn't about what girls should or should not do, but rather the fear factor around pain and injury. And that was what was really, they were really nervous about. And that was really quite important to get to the heart of it. Now, in those cases where you are coming from a more conservative family, um, these are some of the challenges that we face as we're growing up, particularly in a country like Canada, with potentially from family who are sort of bringing a different cultural lens. And now we are living as hyphenated people, having these two sort of uh, trying to balance these two cultural or social 
norms. Um, delicate conversation, delicate negotiations where necessary, but also conviction of self, right? If for you, the conviction is so strong that you feel passionately about sport, know that you will be supported as you move forward. I agree that one of the main factors keeping people from playing sports are serious injuries. So why do you think athletes who have suffered from these serious injuries are willing to continue sports, even when this can possibly demolish their entire sporting career? Mm -hmm. And especially women athletes who aren't even paid as much as their male counterparts, they might not be able to afford the medical help that they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lots of really good parts to that question there too. So my area of research, I've, I've which is the culture of uh, the way of the tolerance and the production and reproduction of, of injury or health compromising practices. And when we talk about health compromising practices, this could include things like disordered eating or excessive exercise or um, painkiller abuse and use or drug use even, uh, other, other form of drug use. We know that culture of is very dominant in competitive sport. And we know that that is often um, a thing that athletes are socialized into. They come to learn that it is normal for an athlete to experience pain and injury, and that it's normal for an athlete to have to tolerate pain and injury. And we use cliched slogans all the time, suck it up, uh, no pain, no gain. Those are the classic ones, right? And there's a bunch of more. And um, I always think about the high school students or the groups that will then even make t-shirts and jerseys and proudly wear it about look at what I've endured. And what we know is that this is not a psychological issue, but a sociological issue, that there are social norms that suggest that this is what is a, a right and appropriate for an athlete to do if they want to really call themselves an athlete. And so to come back to your question, I want to repeat and underscore, these are not individuals who are somehow maybe um, they may have sort of perverse understandings of themselves or they may not respect themselves enough, quite the opposite. They are so invested in belonging to a group like their team or like uh, their, their sport, their, uh, that identity is so strong that the thought of not sucking it up and not playing through the pain, that is what is more problematic for them rather than um, taking time off to recover. In addition to that, once you start to go into the higher, more competitive levels of sport, what we start to see with athletes when we talk to them is that they just understand health really quite differently. So classically, most people, when you ask them to define health, they'll say something like, well, the absence of injury or the absence of disease or sickness. And for athletes, particularly the higher competitive, the high performance ones, they will actually turn around and say, well, health is defined as my ability to perform on the field or on the ice. So their very understanding of health is different than someone who's not a very competitive or high performance sport athlete. So that's why folks are willing to risk themselves, that sense of belonging, but also just a very different sort of orientation to what health is and isn't. Um, the last part of it too, which is really relevant to high performance sport is more often than not, these are folks who are younger, younger rather than older. And so we know that when you're younger, you tend to think of yourself as more invincible. And you may not necessarily think about what your knees may feel like when you're 50, 60, 70 years old. You just want to play in the moment. 
So these are some of the sort of the, the costs and the benefits that people start to really engage in when they're kind of evaluating, oh, I'm hurt. Um, um, and that's why we see a lot of folks willing to play with pain. Mm -hmm. But given the injuries, fear of failure, time constraint, and the intense training that these athletes have to face, in your opinion, should there be rules as to how much a coach can push their students? And if yes, how can we identify what this limit is? Um, yeah, so absolutely, there, there must be safeguards in place um, in sport in order to protect athletes um, where necessary. And, and especially from coaches who might be abusive or who may be very domineering. And the reason for that is, is we always have to appreciate that in a sport context, where is the power? And the power is actually not with the athlete, it's with the coach. A coach is the one who says you're playing or not playing. A coach mm. is the one who turns around and who can say, listen, you're injured. I'm benching you until you're better. The athlete, um, doesn't have that capacity to turn around and should the coach say the opposite to that. Um, they don't have that kind of same power. Now, many coaches, the good news is that there are many coaches who are extraordinarily thoughtful and very protective of their athletes who really do coach with an ethic of care, uh, with a sense of responsibility to their athletes and for their athletes. Unfortunately, however, there's also a lot of evidence to support that there are coaches who are really willing to put their athletes' lives and well-being on the line in order to get the win. And in some cases, that's because those coaches themselves are feeling pressure from the owners or from higher levels of, of the sport management on them in order to produce a particular performance or a particular win. So um, sadly, those cases are there as well too. But in, a, in the most sort of theoretical of a scenario, the power often resides with the coach. It's not with the athlete. Mm, I see. And who do you think can best decide uh, whether an athlete should return to play after they get injured? Do you think it's the athlete, uh, coach, or a medical professional? In an ideal world, it's all of those individuals in conversation with one another. Um, we, we want to respect that people have agency, a sense of themselves, a sense of their, their own sort of capacity to make choices for themselves. And um, mm -hmm. we also need to respect that there are, in some cases, medical clinicians who are connected to a team and who are there to help support the athletes and the team in order mm -hmm. to ensure health and well-being. And then the coach is also a key stakeholder. So in an ideal world, it's all three of those stakeholders working in operation with one another. Um, and, and they are supported by policy. They're supported by a sport organization that says, we are going to have this sort of consultative process to ensure that everyone is safe when they're returning to play or what we, what we uh, make as an acronym RTP, return to play. And do you think that the athlete's mental health is also taken into consideration or do you think it's just the physical injuries? Um, well, I think it depends upon the context. I think there are so many examples. Again, I'll always start with the positive examples where there has been really sort of open dialogue about how a, a, an athlete may or may not be doing. Um, mm -hmm. Now, interestingly enough, I think part of the attention that is being now paid to athlete mental health 
is a consequence of athletes who have retired, who have now come out to say, I was really suffering from profound de depression as an active, when I was in my active years. And so that's an interesting piece there too, that oftentimes uh, those athletes and those other sport participants who are talking about mental health are doing so after they've retired from their sport. So they've needed a bit of distance or separation from their active uh, competition years to be able to get a bit of sort of perspective. Unfortunately, there are still many cases of athletes who are currently, you know, competing and training who are actively dedicating hours of their life to get to the highest levels of their sport career who are suffering and who uh, don't either don't see themselves as suffering, they don't appreciate that they are going through some profound mental health issues or who are not being allowed to actually have their mental health dealt with or to deal with their mental health in a sort of a, a safe, productive way. I think the pressure of media also has a big part to do with this because um, if you've seen the recent news on the NBA, a lot of the athletes have been coming out and speaking out about their own mental health issues. And I think it's something that is becoming more talked about and something that it definitely needs to be dealt with in a, in a better way than it has been done previously. And something, and Recently, there's also been news about uh, transgender athletes, mm -hmm. and there have been ongoing debates about the impact of their biological differences and the testosterone levels giving them a, per, a perceived advantage. Yeah. Um, what do you? What is your perspective on this issue? Sure. So a lot of what the sport organizations are doing. Let me start this way, actually, before I give my full response. Uh, let me start this way by saying that I do not support any ban on transgendered athletes participating in the categories in which they identify. Uh, when we look at the data or the research, uh, particularly in terms of the data and the research that these sport organizations who are advancing the bans, who are pro-ban, when we look at the data that they're looking at, the data is not credible. So the research that they're drawing on is just not credible in order to sort of make the policy positions or the positions that they're taking to ban transgendered athletes. Why? Because um, they are making assumptions that all of us, all human beings have predictable and the same types of hormones and that we can in fact start to make clear sort of demarcations between someone on the basis of their hormones, when in fact, it's really quite arbitrary. So let me offer it this way. How much testosterone does an individual need to have in order to be deemed male? Or how much estrogen does someone need to have in order to be identified as female? That is, there's no one single figure there's no one single number I could give you to say, okay, this is the threshold after which you have more testosterone than this, you are male. There isn't. So what these organizations who are putting forward the transgender ban in their sports, what they're doing, they're making some arbitrary choices, random choices about hormone levels that is completely disconnected from what the research is saying. So 
So I could take a group of a hundred women and I could ask the women to a um, hundred men and women, excuse me, and ask them to race each other. And I have no doubt that there would be some men who are faster than some women, no doubt. But I also have no doubt that there would be some women who would be faster than some men. So why is that the case? Is it just about a certain percentage of estrogen and testosterone? No, it's about human beings are different and have different strengths and capacities. So these transgender bands are frankly, um, I would call them criminal, but they are absolutely exclusionary and they're not grounded in good, credible data. Not at all. And in fact, there has been no evidence to date to support that a transgendered woman, so someone born as biological male and then transitioned into female, there is no evidence to support that that athlete has won each and every race that they've competed against biologically born women in. Sorry, that may not have been the most articulate phrasing, but I hope I made myself clear. A, a transgendered woman does not win 100% of her races all the time. So therefore, why are we going to such lengths to exclude human beings from participating? And why do you think they are actually trying to uh, ban transgender people? If there's no basis in the research, why do you think they're still so adamant about it? Yeah, what a great question. So it's about, I would call it politics, right? The politicking and the desire or the need to be able to control a sport form, right? Jeez. And they often will throw out language like fairness. Well, no, actually, when we look at sport very critically, we already have to throw out language, like we have to throw out this idea of fairness. It's very mythical. It's very yeah. magical thinking to think that sport is fair. It's not. When you're at the highest levels of sport competition, you're already engaging in unfair practices, but whether it be like very sophisticated training technologies or very um, uh, the selection processes. But, but to come back to the question very concretely about the transgendered ban, um, appreciate it this way. What would happen if they actually said, yes, we will allow transgendered athletes to participate? It would start to beg the question of, well, why do we uh, categorize on the basis of biology in the first place? Why do we have men's activities or men's sports and women's sports? Should we move to a different model where you're actually categorizing individuals on the basis of, of ability? So now anyone who has this particular threshold in terms of time, whether they're male, female, or other can participate that's a whole new different way with which to think about sport. Currently right now, it's far more convenient to have these nice tidy boxes, men, women, and then anyone who doesn't fit into, into those two boxes, sorry, we can't have you participate. It's uh, convenient for the sport governing bodies. And do you think it would be better to categorize people according to their ability rather than their sex? I do, I do. I think it would be fantastic, right? I think it would be more honest to have people being able to participate uh, by their ability. You would see, I think, much more spectacular performances by individuals rather than these nice, tidy, neat boxes 
that frankly are not grounded in anything that is credible in terms of research or data. Mm. Mm -hmm. Do you think we would accomplish that anytime soon? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm optimistic in many things, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, unfortunately. I just wanted to add one more question. Given all of the politics surrounding this issue, how do you think we can find a common ground for these athletes? If they can't really, it seems like there's no win situation for them. Do you mean for transgender athletes? Yes, and specifically yeah. for transgender athletes. Well, the common ground is their, um, it's about their right to be able to participate fully as human beings, including in sport. So how do we do that? Well, we continue to do a tremendous amount of ad advocacy, a lot of resistance in, the, in every area possible, whether it be in the legal system, whether it be in the sport policy system, whether it be in our classes and in our education and our awareness, teaching people about what is legitimate, credible research and what isn't. So these are the ways with which we keep advancing knowledge and awareness in order to sort of say, all individuals have a right to participate. Just one more question. A lot of the power is still at the top, right? They control what goes on with sports leagues and sports like the Olympics. A lot of the decisions are made by the, those at the top. And I love that you brought, brought up the Colin Kaepernick um, example in the beginning of the interview, because although he was still fighting for change, he still ultimately got banned from the league and there hasn't really been much change that happened in the league. So do you think for transgender athletes, they, they need um, a way they can fight for their own, their, their own rights is to have a protest of that magnitude or because if we keep talking about um, slow, slowly educating, it's gonna take a very long time, right? Good. It, it could take a really long time, I don't know. But for me, I always think about it in terms of any type of strategy for change has to happen in multiple different ways and at multiple different speeds. So Colin Kaepernick, I mean, when we think about his actions and what he did, absolutely, he mobilized a particular amount of attention, but he was first and foremost treated extraordinarily horribly um, and still remains treated very horribly. And we haven't even seen very much change until frankly now. And that was not as a consequence of Colin Kaepernick really, but as much as it was the murder of, of someone like George Floyd, right? Mm -hmm. That required that mobilization. To come back to the issue of what to do for transgendered athletes, there are many transgendered athletes who are standing up and being the flag bearers and saying, this is not right. I think of Castor Semenya from South Africa and what she has endured and, and how she continues to endure quite publicly. However, it requires allies. It requires allies to come forward and to say, we're not just doing putting all of the responsibility on the Colin Kaepernick's and the Castor Semenya's of the world we are also going to mobilize and say no more, not today. It's definitely a collective effort that yeah. everyone needs to take part in it. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, all right, guys, that's all the time we have today.
On behalf of the New Horizons podcast team, I would like to thank Dr. Safai for coming on today's podcast to talk about the socioeconomic factors that affect athletes and the gender disparities that exist within sports. It was a pleasure talking to you, and I know all our listeners are really excited to learn more about this issue. See you guys next time. Thank you. My pleasure.